are going to be in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7 this morning. And this will open up the letter to the church in Philadelphia. This is possibly referred to in your Bible in the little heading area as either the faithful church, the revived church, uh, probably one of those two, but it's positive. You know, we've come through several letters consecutively the last few weeks that were mostly negative, and it's refreshing to come to a positive letter. So this church has got it going on. Jesus says that they are faithful. And the major prophetic implication of the Church of Philadelphia is this period between 1730 and about 1900, and this is the missionary church. This is when missionary efforts went out in full force. Now, we will do a little bit of a recap through the other letters, and we'll start with the admonitory application, which is the application to all churches. Now, you remember in Ephesus, Jesus said that he wanted devotion, not doctrine only. You know, doctrine is important, but devotion is also important. In Smyrna, that church endured persecution. They were commended for that. In Pergamos, Jesus wanted the church to keep itself pure from outside influence. In Thyatira, keep it pure from pagan practices. Sardis, the admonition there was to watchfulness and diligence. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. In Philadelphia, that's this week, we'll see missionary outreach, the church of the open door. And in Laodicea, we'll come to not next week, but the next, is a prosperous compromise. This church was rich in wealth and material gain, but they were poor in spirit. And we are going to split this Church of Philadelphia up into two Sundays. Just a heads up. We'll get through verse 9 this morning. Next, we have the personal application, which can in some places be very similar to the admonitory application. Ephesus was neglected priorities. God wants our personal devotion next to our doctrine. In Smyrna, we will face satanic opposition. In Pergamos, Jesus says to make no spiritual compromise. Thyatira, we guard ourselves even today from pagan practices. In Sardis, we personally must be watchful and diligent. And in Philadelphia this week, loyal ambassadorship. This church and the people that are being addressed in this church have loyal ambassadorship to God. And in a couple weeks in Laodicea, there is materialistic apostasy, which we should guard ourselves from. Now the promises to the overcomer. God promises in Ephesus, they'll eat of the tree of life. Smyrna, not hurt of the second death. Pergamos, you have the manna, the stone, and the new name. In Thyatira, they're promised power over the nations. Sardis, walk with him in white, and their name will not be blotted out of the book of life. This week in Philadelphia, or really technically next week, he will make them a pillar in his temple. And he will write on him the name of God, the name of his city, and the new name of Jesus. And in Laodicea in a couple of weeks, he 
It will promise that they will sit with him on his throne. And what wonderful promises to these overcomers. Now remember who the overcomers are? 1 John 5, 4 through 5 tells us, and so does Revelation 12, 11. The overcomer is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We are all overcomers if we have been born again into the body of Christ. Now, looking at our text for this morning, chapter 3, starting in verse 7, this whole letter to the church of Philadelphia contains four behold statements from Jesus. Four times he says, behold. And that is a call to the reader to turn your attention to these things. Sometimes when I'm talking, I say, look, blah, 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 blah. And I tell you something that I want to call your attention towards. It's the same way with these beholds. Jesus is calling the reader's attention to these specific things. The first behold is in verse 8, and it's translated in our Bibles as see. See, I have set before you an open door. The second behold is in verse 9. It's translated indeed. He says in verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. And then this is the third. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And then the fourth and last behold statement is in verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. These are all very important points that Jesus is making. And each one of these instances of this word behold stems from the translation of a single root word in the Greek language. It means see, or look at this. Jesus calls our attention to these four phrases. I have set before you an open door. I will make those who say they are Jews but lie, worship before you, and know that I have loved you. And I am coming quickly. And that will be very, very important next week when we talk about verse 10. Thus, we would do well to pay attention to each of these points made by Jesus. So there will be special emphasis placed on these points as we move through. Now, verse 7, I'm going to read through the whole letter for us, give us some context here. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy. He who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is an encouraging and uplifting letter from Jesus. Now, verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. Now, there's some discrepancies about exactly when Philadelphia was founded. And that discrepancy stems from who you think founded it. Um, It was either one of two brothers. Attalus was the younger of the brothers, and Eumenes was the older of the brothers. Depending on who you think founded it, it will range from either 189 B.C. or 140 B.C. And regardless of which view you take on that, this makes this the youngest of the seven cities that Jesus addresses letters to the church to. So this is the youngest of these cities. I think that this city was founded by Eumenes, who was the older brother to Attalus. Now, these brothers were very close to one another, relationally. And there was even a time when word got back to Attalus, the younger brother, that his older brother, who was the king at the time, um, that he had passed away. So this word comes to Attalus, and in turn, he assumes the throne, um, and he assumes duties of being king. But that turned out to be a lie, and Eumenes actually was still alive. So when Eumenes returned to the city, Attalus graciously stepped down from the throne and allowed his older brother to reassume that position. Now, if you look at history, that's not common. Once someone's in power, they're usually there to stay, no matter what they have to do to keep that power. So this is just one example of the fondness that we know Attalus had for Eumenes. And no doubt, I think that Eumenes returned that fondness to Attalus. Attalus would actually go out of his way to talk highly about his other brother. You know, that's something that we don't find a lot in history, especially among royalty. Usually there's tearing down even of brothers. And he even minted coins with Eumenes' image, and he named places after his older brother. There was this fondness, brotherly love, if you will, between these founders. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. Philadelphia means brotherly love, and properly the city of brotherly love. Brotherly love is mentioned many times in Scripture. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 13.1, simply let brotherly love continue. 
1 Peter 1, 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere, that is unhypocritical love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. 2 Peter 1, 6 through 7, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness. And finally, add to brotherly kindness love, and that is agape. These things says he who is holy. Much of the church has forgotten that these words come from the one who is holy. You know, as a Christian, we don't want to be filled with the cool spirit or the culturally relevant spirit or the hip spirit. We seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that should be the same for the church in general. Holy is set apart. It's completely separate from the world. He's not just perfect, but he is completely separate or set apart. There are only two categories that exist. There is creator and there is created. Creature and creator. Nothing else in the universe exists. God and his creation. He is completely distinct from that creation. He's set apart. He is holy. He who is true. Now, the better sense of this word true is genuine and sincere. Jesus is saying, I am genuine and sincere. This letter is coming from the one who is true. And it's nice when we come across someone who is genuine who is sincere, and it's refreshing. You know, I love talking to genuine people. Certainly a genuine artifact is worth more than some piece of contrived significance. It would be nice to hear something genuine on the news. Genuine is valuable, and I think a lot of people have also forgotten that today. Now, he is true. He is the real deal. He's separate and genuine. These last four churches mentioned, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, will be around when Jesus returns. That is these church systems. The church in Philadelphia is the only church system of these four that are really faithful to what Jesus has called them to. The other three have people in them that remain faithful, and I've been referring to them as the remnant. But the system itself of the other three is corrupt. It's fallen short. But to Philadelphia, he says, you're faithful, but feeble. You have a little strength, but you've done many good things. And you'll notice that Jesus has no condemnation for this church. It's all commendation. It was the same way for the church in Smyrna. 
Jesus had no condemnation for them. And I don't believe that it's a coincidence that these two cities are the two cities with a Christian influence today. And they're the only two out of these seven churches. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opened. Now, if you want to turn to Isaiah 22 real quick with me, we'll look at verse 22. This is talking about a time in Israel's history where this key of David was passed off. Shebna was King Hezekiah's treasurer. In Isaiah 22, it's recorded the deeds of Shebna that got him reprimanded by God. It says that he was building a tomb for himself, a sepulcher. He was building this ornate, opulent tomb for himself. And because of this, God threw him away. He was superseded by Eliakim. And in Isaiah 22, 22, God says, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, speaking of Eliakim. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. So Eliakim then held the key of David, and this would indicate his power to grant or deny people an audience with the king. He alone provided access to the presence of the king with this key of David. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. This open door is the city itself. Philadelphia, it's thought, was designed for the purpose of spreading Greek culture into Asia. It was a missionary city. And it was a missionary city in the sense that it was a cultural missionary agenda. Um, not necessarily a Christian missionary agenda when it was founded. But we see that Jesus takes hold of this city and turns it into a Christian missionary city, a hub where the people, the Christians in Philadelphia, went out into the world and proclaimed the gospel. It was already a missionary city before any Christians ever got there. God placed this church in Philadelphia, in a fertile place where they'd have opportunity to reach more people. And Jesus even says that no one can shut that door that he's opened. And we see in history, that door has not been shut. The Philadelphia era in church history refers to what we'd call the missionary church. And that spanned from, like I said, about 1730 to 1900. This is the major prophetic time period of Philadelphia. But like the last two church systems and like Laodicea, this one is still alive today and it will remain until Jesus returns. And please note that Jesus spoke of a remnant in the last two church systems. And this remnant was who remain faithful to him, but he doesn't single out individuals in the church of Philadelphia. 
He speaks to them as a congregation, as a group. Apparently because the church itself has remained faithful. This is the church that I would like to be identified with at his coming, the church of Philadelphia. Acts 14, verse 27 says, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Hmm. God had opened a door in a mighty way for the gospel to be extended to the whole world, including now the Gentiles. We see another open door. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Whenever a door is opened, we can expect adversaries to be present. Our adversary, the devil, doesn't want us to step through these doors that God opens. Now, I'll remind you, he can't shut the door. He who opens and no one shuts. If God opens the door, Satan can't close that door, but he can make it a lot more difficult for us to step through it. And that is what he does. 2 Corinthians 2.12 Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. Colossians 4, 2-4 Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So Paul here asked the believers in Colossae to pray that God would open a door for him and his fellow missionaries to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And I will just say, if the Apostle Paul needed a door to be opened for him to preach, how much more do we need a door open for us to effectively preach the gospel? In Colossians, that last snippet, he was specifically asking for prayer that an opportunity for conversation would be made so that he could sneak something in about Jesus. Shouldn't we be praying for this same exact thing, for opportunities in our conversations to be made where we can sneak in a little conversation about Jesus? But even besides that, another door needs to be opened in the heart of the hearer. In order for the gospel message to be received, the soil of the hearts of the people that hear must be softened. Their hearts must be prepared to receive it. And without this work of God in each one of our hearts, we would never have accepted what is spiritual by nature the gospel of Christ. The carnal man only knows carnal things, but the spiritual man can discern spiritual things. So left to our own devices, each one of us resorts to our innate carnality, that is without the influence of the Spirit. But through the work of God drawing us to himself, 
we can discern the gospel of Christ, which is spiritual by nature. In John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one can come to Jesus except that God draw them. There has to be that preparation of the soil of the heart. And this is a door that God opens that no one can shut. Jesus says, and shuts, and no one opens. Ooh. There are open doors, but there are also closed doors. May we be mindful of that. God shut the door of the ark of Noah. We find this in Genesis 7, 16. It says, So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut the door of the ark. It was too late for anyone else to board the ark, but Noah and his family were sealed in. They were shut in by God. There does come a point when God shuts doors. Matthew 25 tells of the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. This is Jesus talking. The foolish virgins wanted to come into the wedding, but they were not allowed to do so. God shut that door. There is a time when the opportunity to accept Christ is lost, and no one can reopen that door. Now, Each one of us will come to this point in our lives when we cease to exist on the earth, when we die, and we move to either heaven or hell. And at that point, your opportunity to accept Christ is lost, and it can't be regained. And if we look at this open and shut door more generally um, in our lives, practically, There are times when God shuts doors in our lives. There are times when he opens them in our lives. I intended on going to a specific college. When I was graduating high school, I had my eyes set on a college. I was denied access. That door was shut. And so I came to Tarleton, which I ended up loving, by the way. And looking back on that closed door, I'm so thankful for it because I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't be who I am if I had gone off to that other college. Who knows what would have happened? It would have changed the entire course of my life. And that's not an exaggeration. Sometimes I wonder what would be different if we only knew what he was planning for us. But I soon arrived to the conclusion that whatever it is, I would probably mess it up if I knew about it, you know? So we can't be too set on knowing the plan before it unfolds. Um, But it it may be interesting sometimes. You know, we are told that um, there's peace that surpasses understanding. And that is surpasses in value understanding. So even if we knew 
and we didn't have peace about it, what value would that be to us? On the flip side of that, if we have peace about our future, knowing that God holds it, then what knowledge do we need to go along with that? You know, we have peace in the fact that God holds our future. So he will open doors, he will shut doors, and those things can't be reversed, uh, especially by men, but it's for our good. Jesus says, I know your works to this church in Philadelphia. And when he says, I know your works, in contrast to last week, this time, it's actually a good thing. This is a commendation. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. This is one of our behold statements. See. The idea is that God has set before them an open door, and it's still open, and no one can shut it. That door is currently open. No man can shut the doors that God opens for us. And this was seen in a powerful way with the Smyrna era church who endured persecution after persecution and still managed to spread the gospel across the known world. God opened a door for the churches in that era. That is a testament to the fact that when God opens doors, they can't be shut. However, God cannot force us to walk through the doors that he opens. We can't live a God-honoring life from our couch, and we certainly can't be pew potatoes. We can't just sit in here soaking it up and not do anything about it. Just keep it to ourselves. We must be active. We must be living what we learn. We should be running through those doors that God opens for us. There are doors in the mission field, no doubt. Doors to gospel-centered conversations with friends and family. And there are doors of opportunity in our own personal lives. For you have a little strength. I've kept my word and have not denied my name. That for, at the beginning, is causative. It's denoting causation. He's explaining why they were given that open door. And in the local sense, why they were placed in the city, Philadelphia, where missionary efforts could be so fruitful. In the prophetic sense, he's explaining why the church of this time period was placed where it could make a great harvest in the mission field. For you have a little strength. There are these three things. You have a little strength, you kept my word, and you have not denied my name. We read, you have a little strength, and we think, oh, that's not good. Just a little? Oh yeah, I mean, just a little. But that is good. We have a little strength. We're not completely dead like the church in Sardis. We have a little strength. He's saying, 
you actually have a little strength. And as amazing as that is today, I hope that he can say to us, to this church, you have a little strength. The word for little is micros, like micro. And if we look through scripture, God consistently chooses the ones with micro strength to do great things. And this church is no exception. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 reads, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So what did that little passage tell us? God chooses the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. What does that tell you about me? You know, I was apparently chosen to be up here talking to you this morning. It means I'm weak. I have micro strength. Um, And I love to see that because what that means is whatever happens in this little body of believers is not due to what I've done. I have micro strength. I can't do anything of myself. But all of that glory goes to God. And I'm so thankful for that. Deuteronomy 7, 7 speaks of Israel, saying, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. God chose Israel because they weren't mighty. Because he knew whatever happens with this nation, whoever they conquer, whatever prowess they say to have, is because of me. It's not because they're great in number. It's not because they're mighty in themselves. But that glory is mine. And he is completely just to want glory. The second thing, you have kept my word. Have we held tightly to his word? I was startled to find this week in the Strong's Dictionary that kept carries the figurative meaning to keep unmarried. Remember back in Pergamos, the perverted marriage. Keep carries the figurative meaning to keep unmarried. The picture here is that this church has maintained and preserved the integrity of God's word by safeguarding it from outside influence. That is the commendation here. You have kept, you have safeguarded my word. And evidently, they have taken great care to interpret and apply God's word correctly. 
They have divided the word of truth with great precision. And I hope that Jesus can commend us for that. The third thing, and have not denied my name. And again, we see name is singular, my name. And this speaks of ambassadorship. Ambassadorship and authority. It talks about their ambassadorship, this church in Philadelphia, and it speaks of his authority. That is, his name brings forth everything that he is. And because we are his ambassadors, we operate under his authority. And this church has operated well. You have not denied my name. They have maintained the integrity of his authority. Now, those acts in themselves, those three things, didn't cause the door to open. But God caused the door to open because he looked favorably on them. God opens and shuts these doors. We do not. Verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now, first, let's get something straight. Jesus is not anti-Semitic. The man Jesus was a Jew himself. Paul was Jewish. John, the writer of this, was Jewish. We, as Gentiles, were grafted into their tree. Our Bible was written, in a large part, by Jews. And it was written from a Jewish perspective. This is not knocking the Jews. Now, the Jews have been blinded to the reality of Christ, their own Messiah. But the problem here is that there are those who claim to be Jews, but are not. The idea is that he will cause some of them, not all of them, to be brought into the body of Christ. And this is what it appears to be saying. In a general sense, We can take this to mean that God will cause certain ones who profess to be Jews to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We saw this same verbiage, synagogue of Satan, in the letter to the church of Smyrna. The promise there was that the synagogue of Satan wouldn't prevail against the faithful. And the promise is strengthened in this letter to say that the church would even win over a few of her adversaries. I do want to point out that the synagogue of Satan is referenced in both of these letters that only contain commendations to the church, Smyrna and Philadelphia. All good things said by Jesus, and we come across this synagogue of Satan. Now, I'm not sure exactly what to do with that information except to tell you to expect attacks when things are going well. When things are 
going well in the church, great work for Christ is being accomplished, we can expect some pushback. And we saw this in 1 Corinthians 16.9 that I read earlier. Paul said, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When we start accomplishing something for Christ, we can expect resistance. Now, locally, locally speaking, this church in Philadelphia um, concerning the synagogue of Satan and the promise made attached to that, this probably just simply refers to some of the Jews who opposed the Christians in Philadelphia who were being converted. At this time period, when the local application would have been in effect, the Jews were mostly opposed to Christianity. Um, And we know from Saul's testimony, later Paul, Saul went around killing Christians. He was a Jew of the Jews. He was, you know, born in the right lineage. He kept his Torah. You know, he studied under Gamaliel, one of the top scholars of the day, and he killed Christians. The Jews, historically, have been opponents of Christianity. God opened a door for them, and he opened a door to them. We'll look at that again. Now, prophetically speaking, the specific prophetic significance of this verse is a little more difficult to discern than the mention of the synagogue of Satan to the church in Smyrna. And that's just because the Smyrna era prophetic period has already passed. It's in history and it's recorded for us to look back on. Now, part of the Philadelphia era is already complete. You know, the major prophetic significance ended in about 1900. But we know from Jesus' reference to his coming that this church system will be around up until that point when he comes. And so we are partially looking to the future for this prophetic significance. And that makes it, by nature, a little bit tougher to come to a concrete explanation. Now, we could be looking for something that has begun but will reach its fulfillment or its completion in the future. Some well-respected Bible teachers have proposed that this text, this verse 9, refers to those who hold the idea of replacement theology. We talked about that a little bit last week. It just says that the church has taken Israel's place in God's promises. They say that they are Jews, they've replaced Israel, but are not. I can get on board with this idea. I think it satisfies a lot of the requirements of the text, but it might even have a broader application. And I think that the synagogue of Satan could refer to the apostate church of the last days. That is the church, in air quotes, that opposes the true body of Christ. And that would actually include those holding to replacement theology. So possibly a little bit more general in its application. It's also possible that this is referring to professing Jews 
who will come to a knowledge of Christ in the last days. They are blinded for now until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But God will restore them. In Romans 11, Paul addresses the relationship between Israel, the church, and God. And he does so at fairly great length. Now, I want to read through Romans 11 with you real quick, as quick as we can. But it just gives a great background to what we're talking about here. Romans 11, Paul is writing to the Romans. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Right there you have it. But we'll continue. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, speaking of Israelites. For if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. I want you to pay special attention to this little section here. He's talking about this olive tree. This olive tree is the people of God. Israel is the olive tree. But through unbelief, some of its branches were broken off. Grafted into that tree is us, the Gentiles. 
Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that is, those Israelites, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Now, we're going to stop there. Did you see this picture of the olive tree? The Jews, Israelites, are the natural branches that he speaks of. The Gentiles are those who were grafted in to the tree. If you're not familiar with the term grafting, uh, it's when you cut off a branch of the tree and you put a different tree's branch onto it. So you have this amalgamation. The Gentiles have been grafted in to the tree. Now it also says about the root and the branches, the branches don't support the root, but the root supports the branches. Who is the root? Jesus Christ. Jesus supports both Israel and the Gentiles. That is Paul's address of the relationship between Israel, the church, and God. And I'd encourage you this week to go back to that chapter, Romans 11, reread it, and try to dig into it a little bit more. So, I have presented a few options for you for the prophetic significance of the synagogue of Satan. And I think there are merits to each of those possibilities, but I can't tell you for sure which one to go with. So, the duty is yours to get back into the scripture and search it out for yourself. He says, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Now, this is certainly not saying that these Jews who come back in as born-again believers will worship us. This is not to say that. Before, that word simply means in our presence. They will worship God in our presence, before our feet. God will cause them to come and worship him in our presence. In the first commandment given by God in Exodus 20, verse 3, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. 
that before does not mean that he must be the primary in a long list of gods. It's not talking about the first place. He's saying, guys, you cannot have any other gods in my presence. None in front of me, behind me, or beside me. No other gods before me. So here's the same idea that before means in the presence of. And we would do well to recognize that even the angel in Revelation 19.10 refused John's worship. So even angels are not to be worshipped, and certainly not men. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. So in this letter, we have four behold statements. Jesus is calling special attention to these certain things. And next week, we'll come to verse 10, one of the strongest points for a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And we will go through that carefully um, and try to pull some meaning out of it. We'll also see the promises to the overcomers. The promises that God makes in this letter are great. He will make you a pillar in his temple. And we'll see the local significance of that as well. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And I will write on him my new name. We have much more to get through in this letter to the church of Philadelphia. But what did we see today? Well, we know that regardless of an individual's history, at some point in the future, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that that will come to pass. There will be a time when people cannot deny Jesus any longer. There will be a time. But before this time will come, the door of salvation will be closed. There is a time when the door will be closed, when men can no longer turn to Christ as their Savior. Hebrews tells us that we die once, then we're judged. There's no opportunity for salvation to make that confession of faith in Christ after we die. God has set before us this morning an open door. If you're not saved, if you have not come into the body of Christ, been born again, that is the first door that you need to step through. If you're already born again, maybe God has set before you a door to your next steps to grow in this relationship with him. And that relationship starts when you accept him as your Savior and your Lord. And it's my encouragement to you this morning to simply walk through whatever door has been placed in front of you. If God has opened that door, no man can shut it. Take that step of faith and walk through the door. 
He can open them, but only you can walk through them. Don't wait until it's too late. Whatever it is, take that step of faith and walk through the open door. Guys, let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer. Thank you.